Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open them to Luke, the book of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 22. So we're going to talk today about uh, killing anxiety. Killing anxiety. Any of you suffer with anxiety? Um, I'm not going to try to cure all of your anxieties, but maybe, maybe one particular form. I was reading an article this past week, and uh, the specific type of anxiety we'll talk about is related to finances today. Uh, last week, we talked about uh, a year of service and serving God and how that blesses our lives and serving does something for us. And uh, today, I want to continue that theme and kind of talk about a year of giving. Um, so when we talk about our finances today, understand this, that giving does something for us, that it actually uh, makes us filled with joy. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive, according to Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that. But I ran across this article, and it was talking about people who suffer from MAD, and it was M period, A period, D period, and it was uh, money, anxiety, disorder. And I thought, I probably have that, you know, and so I began looking up the, the symptoms of it, and, and sure enough, I probably got all of those things. But how many of you have suffered from money, anxiety, disorder before? Did you know that they actually listed that as a psychological illness now? That's actually in their, their books. And so if you've been anxious about money, you should probably go see a doctor this week, all right? <laughs> Don't come see me because I can't help you, all right? So, uh, but we're going to talk about killing anxiety. And one of the ways we kill it is through our finances. And it's not just about us giving, but it's how we view our finances. And uh, I'll read a quote here in just a little bit. But a lot of times we as pastors and as churches, we tend to not talk about money, you know, because it's so unspiritual, right? But Jesus said that where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. It's actually a very spiritual thing, and it reveals a lot about us. And so we're going to talk about money, but not just the giving, but also how we view it, okay? Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 22 through 34, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. We live in a stressed out world a world that is filled with anxiety, and yet Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life. And then he went on to describe what life is, and it's not what we think it is. There's more to life, Jesus says, than what you're wearing. Um, Contrary to what some of the ladies think as they go seriously shopping, there's more to life than what you're wearing. And it's more than what you eat, contrary to what some of the preachers feel. Um, There's more to life than that. There's more to life than what you're driving or the size of the home that you're living in. There's more to life than the size of your retirement account. There is just more to life than money or material things. And Jesus makes it very clear. He says, there's more to life than this. It's more. And Jesus teaches that there's more to life than than any of these things. And then he goes on to teach us that God cares for us. Do we understand how much God cares for us? Maybe we, uh, we would do well. We had our children in here just a little bit ago, and, and they go out, and a lot of times the children sing some of the simpler songs in church, don't they? And one of my favorites, one of the ones we probably all know, was Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And as adults, we quit singing that, but we need to be reminded of that, of how much God really loves us, and when we love something, we care about that, don't we? And so God loves us, and he cares about us. And look at verse 24. Here's Jesus' example. He says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They neither storehouse, uh, They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
And there's the comparison there, of course. He says, aren't you more valuable than the birds? But the main point is this, is that you are of value to God that God cares about you, and that if he would take care of the birds that fly in the sky and, and don't have a Monday through Friday nine-to-five job and don't you know, pay their taxes and don't contribute to society, and yet God takes care of them, he makes sure they're provided for, won't he take care of you and I? After all, we were made in the image of God. When God made all of creation, we were the, the final part of creation, and, and basically he said all of this creation is for man to enjoy and to take care of, and we were the crowning jewel of his creation. God cares about us. He says, you're more important than the birds. And verse 25, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Will anxiety make you live any longer? Probably not. In fact, it may indeed reduce the length of your life if we're too wrapped up in our anxiety. He says, which of you could do that to add a single hour to his span of life? In Matthew, he talks about adding a cubit to your stature. And one commentator said that the reason he probably picked a cubit was because if he'd have said an inch to his stature, which would also be impossible, we'd have maybe thought we could do it. And so he stretched it out to 18 inches. And maybe that's what he's talking about here in this hour, is that we might think we can do these things, but we really can't. He says, consider the lilies. Uh, Verse 26, if you're then not able to do such a small uh, thing as this, why are you anxious about the rest? Why do you have all this anxiety? You, You have no control over these little things, and so you certainly don't have control over the big things. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And boy, we're at a time of year when, when this is evident right before us, isn't it? We're beginning to see the lilies start to bloom. I shared with the church last Wednesday, Sunday night, I think, that I looked out in my yard the other day. It almost broke my neck slipping on ice on that freezing day. And uh, as I look out, there's little plants coming up everywhere, and I have no clue what they are. And so thank goodness for technology. I snap pictures, and I text them to my mom, and I say, what's this? Should I dig it up and kill it or leave it alone? You know? and, but they're, they're popping up. But I know what they look like when they go into full bloom. And it's real easy to distinguish. And you know what? I didn't plant those. I didn't care for them. I didn't fertilize the soil. I didn't do anything, and yet they're coming up. And they'll come up year after year. And he says, if God does this with the lilies, won't he take care of us to make sure we're all right? I think we stress too much about things. In verse 29, he says, and do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. And Jesus makes that very powerful statement in there in verse 30, doesn't he? He says, all the nations of the world seek these things. He says, these are the things that everybody is looking for. These are the things that everybody in the world is stressed out about and is anxious about and is pursuing. This is what, if you will, the world's philosophy is, is to go out there and make a living and make a life and and do all of these things. And, And yet Jesus says that's what they worry about. But it shouldn't be that way with us. It shouldn't be that way with us. He says, in other words, everyone's consumed by the stress and anxiety of their finances and their material things. They spend so much time pursuing these things above everything else. But the reality is, it shouldn't be that way for us as children of God. 
And it doesn't have to be that way is what he's teaching us here. He says, our Heavenly Father knows what our needs are. He knows. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You and I, we come and we pray to God and we, we present our needs to Him. But isn't it great to know that He already knows what they are? You know, he, I, I, how many of you watch these do-it-yourself television programs? I, I watch those like anytime I'm home. It seems like that's all that's on. Kathy gets so tired of watching them, but hey, I watch her stuff too. But I'm watching those things, and these two ladies were having their home remodeled, and, and they came, every time the contractor would come in, they'd want to add something to the project. And so finally she came up with this idea, and she says, well, you know, I know you're going to kill me and you're going to be upset, but I was wondering if you could add this. And he just kind of stepped aside, and he says, I knew that you would want that, and I already did it. And he pointed to it. He had already planned on it. And I thought when I watched that, you know, that's a lot like God, isn't it? That we come to God with our needs, and God said, I already knew you'd need that. I already knew you'd, you'd need a place to live. I already knew you'd need a job. I already know you, you need something to, to take care of business with. I knew these things. God knows every one of our needs. He took care of them, and he does take care of them. And so he provides these things. And when we truly understand that we serve a heavenly Father that takes pleasure, the Scripture says, in giving us these things, then we're free to pursue God and his kingdom, first and foremost. I like the way Matthew words it. He says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. It's not that those things aren't important. They're very important. That's why we stress over them, and that's why we're anxious over them. But what Jesus is trying to tell us is, as important as they may seem to you, there is something more important. And if we will get our priorities right, he says, I'll take care of those things. I'll make sure that you're okay. He goes on in verse 31. Instead, instead of being like the world, instead of stressing over things, instead of being filled with anxiety is what he's saying, instead, seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says he loves that. God delights in that. Uh, how many of us like doing things for our children? Um, some of us, we like doing things for our children too much, don't we? we? We spoil them. We give them more than they probably deserve. But we take joy in that. And he says, your father takes great pleasure in giving you the kingdom. And then in verse 33, he begins to change this from God taking care of us to some instruction for us. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves, uh, uh, provide yourselves with money backs that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So Jesus gives some amazing instructions there. First, he says, sell what you have and give it to the needy. And those words sound familiar to us because they're the words that Jesus told a rich young ruler who came to Jesus. Remember the young man that came and he was wealthy, he was a leader, and, and he said, what do I need to do to be saved? And he gave him the commandments. And he says, I've done all those things. And finally, Jesus' instruction was, sell whatever you have and give it to the needy and follow me. And we know that the rich young ruler, it says, went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And then the second thing that Christ instructs him here is he says, provide for yourself uh, a money bag that does not grow old. Store up treasure in heaven. Or maybe what we could word this is learn to accumulate eternal riches rather than temporary riches. Because we all know, don't we, that you know a paycheck today is gone tomorrow, isn't it? 
that it just never lasts, does it? it it's, it's amazing that two weeks later, we're, we're waiting for the boss to give us another one, aren't we? These things, it's like they just don't seem to last. And so he says, find a money bag that does not have holes in it, that does not grow old, that does not fall apart, and that is permanent. Moths don't affect it. Thieves can't get a hold of what's inside of that. And he says, lay up treasures in heaven. And that sounds very similar to Haggai the prophet. He said this. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He's talking about all the things Jesus was talking about. And he says, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. An earthly money bag, not a heavenly money bag. In other words, we're putting all of our stock, everything in life, into one bag, and that bag has holes. And so what he's directing us to do is to begin to invest in something beyond this world, something that will last, something that will not rust or moths won't destroy, something that is eternal into his kingdom, in other words. And that's the way Jesus instructed us. Listen to Luke 9. 23 through 25, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? And I read that because that is really, when we talk about finances and money, we talk about saving and spending, don't we? And here we want you to understand that, listen, it's about more than just money. It's about our lives. And if our whole life is spent trying to save ourselves and save our time and save our money, and it's all about bringing in, bringing in, and bringing in, we'll lose it all in the end. Jesus' instruction was to lose your life for his sake, to give it away. In Acts, we read that we achieve greater joy by giving, and that's where he tells us, in all things, I have shown you that by working hand, uh, hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But sadly, we avoid talking about giving. We're afraid people to think that that's all that we want is people's money. You imagine the pride that is in that statement. If I were to walk in this door today and come in the back and I'm sitting down there and my attitude is all this church wants is my money. I probably need to double check the balance in my checkbook, don't I? Because if that's all they want, they ain't getting much when they get me. You know, and it's not about money. And the Lord doesn't want your money. It's his money anyway. And that's the principal foundation of stewardship. It all belongs to the Lord. He loans it to us. He lends it to us. He entrusts us with us to manage it. But it's all his. And so but because of this fear that, oh, they're always talking about money. They're always wanting something. We don't talk about it. Stephen Olford, a prominent pastor and author, said this. He said, I'm convinced that the devil has caused the subject of giving to stir up resistance and resentment among God's people because he knows there are few ways of spiritual enrichment like the exercise of faithful stewardship. In other words, he said the reason we get so worked up about it is because the devil doesn't want us to talk about it, because it enriches our souls. It does something for us. We just finished up November and December, and those are two months of giving here in our church. 
as we bring in. And I tell you, every year that I've been here, we look and I say, man, I don't know. We don't have any really wealthy people. And boy, we're really pushing them to give because we're giving gifts to the, the residents of the rest home. Every one of them got a gift. And we're giving out over 40, almost 50 gifts to children in the community. And then we're giving out 20-something Thanksgiving dinner boxes that aren't just a dinner. It's like a, a week's worth of food. And then we turn around and do it right again at Christmas. And I think, man, how are we going to do this? Our people don't have. And yet every year you guys come through. You come carrying in a, a can of corns, a can of beans, a box of stuffing, and you do what you can do. But no matter what you do, you feel great about it. And how sad it is that we don't talk about that and share that, that one of the greatest joys in life is to give. Here's some quotes about giving that I found inspiring. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those who who have the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. In other words, C.S. Lewis said, I, I, I couldn't put an exact figure on how much we should give. He says, but I think this, that if you were to compare us in the church to those in the world without Christ making the same amount of money, they should be probably enjoying some things out in the world that we can't afford to do because we choose to give. Powerful statement. Barbara Bush, the first lady, said this, giving frees us from the familiar territory of our own needs by opening our mind to the unexplained worlds occupied by the needs of others. How many of us have ever been trapped into a world that was all about our own needs? Man, I need this and I need that and I got to have this. And man, I'm short here and I'm short there. And unaware that there are people around us with far less than we have. My brother posted something on his Facebook the other day and it just kind of warmed my heart and broke my heart at the same time. But he talked about pulling into a gas station and a a young lady came up kind of unkept and asked him for a little help. and, And he said, hey, I can't help you right now. But the owner of the station came out and began to yell at her. Get off my property. Don't come back. And he said, how sad that we treat people in our society like stray dogs. But we begin to get so wrapped up in our own needs that we forget there are a multitude of people suffering. And so Mrs. Bush points that out. Anne Frank said this, no one has ever become poor by giving. I thought that was pretty telling too. Here's a few scriptures about giving that I wanted to share with you, and then we'll, we'll close with three main points. But here's some scriptures. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. The apostle writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so are you also to do. And so he kind of tells them, Hey, this is something that I'm directing you to do, but I've also directed the other churches to do this. In other words, this is common practice. I'm not asking you to do something that no one else hasn't done. He says, I've asked them to do it. In verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. 
There's some things that we could understand about giving there. Number one is giving was decided to be on a regular basis. That it wasn't something uncommon. He he stated on the first day of each week. And unfortunately, many times our giving is special occasion giving, if we're not careful. That certain events roll around during the year, don't don't they? These telethons and special cancer awareness and, and, you know, certain times. And we say, oh, I got to I got to give. Or maybe the end of the year rolls around and we're saying, oh my goodness, tax time's coming. I got to give or I'm going to be in trouble with the IRS. But what the apostle tells us here is this is a regular thing. That this is something they did each week. And secondly, it was an expected practice. He says not only each week, he says, but I've determined, he said that each of you is to put up something. That it was expected of them. You're to put, up some, put something aside. And so as we walk through the doors of, of this church or any church, it's expected that everybody gives something. He said, well, I don't have a lot. Then don't give a lot. He said, I have a lot. Then give a lot. But everybody's expected to give something. You remember the story Jesus told about the widow who came in. And even though others offered a larger monetary amount, she gave all that she had. And Jesus questioned him and said, who do you think gave the most? And it was her. But it, it was expected of everyone to participate. I can tell you as a pastor, it's been too long that I've been pastoring now, but pastors tend to get wrapped up sometimes in money. I try to just stay out of that. But there was one period, of course, starting a mission church, you're always worried about money because you've got a huge you know, building to pay for and you've got things to cover. And, and mission church is kind of tough. Our building payment up north was $6,800 a month, I think. And then you added in insurance and it was a lot that we carried. And so there were times I'd sit down, and, and I didn't ever want to know who gave what, but I would just say, how many tithing units do we have? How many families do we have that give? And it was amazing that every time we'd look and we'd say, well, we might have 70 families on our roll, but only 12 families give to the church. And it would break your heart, but it would also waken you up to the potential of what could this church do if everybody just did something. You say, well, man, I can't give, you know, a thousand bucks a month. Well, maybe you're 10 bucks a month added to the guy next to you is 10 bucks a month, or your 100 added to the one behind you. But if we all did something, what could we do? And this is going to be an amazing year at our church as we've got some opportunities that lie before us. Uh, we had an appraisal done on the property next door, and, and God is going to open the doors for us to have some more parking. Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe some more classrooms. And if you've been out in our classrooms on Sunday, you know, wouldn't that be nice? And so as I was ordering that and met with the appraiser, I get another email from another person who owns some more property. And they said, hey, I'd like to meet with you next week. I'm going to be in town. And I'm like, Lord, you're bringing on the opportunities. You've got to bring on the cash. <laughs> and you look at it and you say, man, that, that is like crazy. How could we ever do that? Hey, we can do it. We can do it if we all do our part. I was reminded of a pastor that stood before his congregation and it was a large congregation. They were getting ready to go into a large building program and so he gave them this extremely large amount of money that needed to be raised. He says, I've got bad news and I've got good news. And they said, okay, give it to us. He says, well, the bad news is we need to come up with $25 million for this building project. And they're like, oh, no. And he says, they said, what's the good news? And they said, the good news is we already have it. It's in your bank accounts. But it, this giving is something that each of us is expected to do. And God will bless that. He always honors that. 
And third that we gather from this passage is that giving is proportional, isn't it? The King James words it this way, as God has prospered him. In other words, we're to give as God prospers us. Give as we've been blessed. So if we walk in and we say, I got nothing to give, then that means you haven't been blessed, right? But if we've been blessed, we're to give according to that. Bigger blessings, bigger gifts. But we give proportionally, and that is a great way to give. And then in 2 Corinthians 8, we also read Paul speaking about giving. And here he's talking about meeting the needs of another congregation. He says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You catch those phrases there? Their abundance of joy. And then he says, extreme poverty. And this has caused an overflowing of wealth and generosity. Think about that. It is very possible that even in extreme poverty, you and I can experience an abundance of joy. I think in America, we've forgotten that. And we think the only way we can have joy is by having extreme wealth. But he said this church, in their extreme poverty, had an overabundance of joy, and the end result was this amazing generosity. Listen to verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And the King James makes it clear this grace of giving is what he's talking about. In other words, we have this great faith and these speeches that we give, but he says, among all the good things we do, let giving be among those two. And he talks about this church, and some things that stand out, one is they gave according to and above their means. Again, proportional. They gave according to what they could afford, but then they went above and beyond that. And that kind of ties in with one of the quotes that we read. Secondly, I notice here, and this is very strange, he says, they begged us for the opportunity to give. They begged us for the opportunity to give. Now, how many of us think that if we forgot the offering, how many people do you think would say, hold up a minute, we can't go home, the line at the sizzler can wait, we've got to take an offering. They begged for this. Even though they were hurting themselves, even though they were in extreme poverty, it says, they urged them, let us give more. It's very rare, isn't it? And then it says that this stands out. He says, they gave themselves to the Lord and to the apostles. He says, first and foremost, they gave themselves. And I think when anytime we talk about giving, we automatically think money, don't we? But he says, before they ever gave their money, they had given themselves wholly to the Lord. And it might very well be that how we give our money and our finances and our material things is an indicator of how much we're willing to give ourselves to God. That if I'm willing to let go of some things, maybe that indicates how much I've been letting go of myself to the Lord. 
And then finally, we're to excel in everything, faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, and in the grace of God. Let me give you three thoughts in closing about giving. The first one is this, is giving is to the Lord, not the church. It's to the Lord, not the church. Uh, I I don't think I would like belonging to, there are churches that, I don't think I'd like belonging to one that sent me a bill every month. Because I don't owe it to the church, I owe it to God. And I think when we get this misconception that I'm giving my money to the church, all of a sudden giving becomes a burden to us. It becomes like a bill. It becomes like I give some of my money, I give too much of my money to Southern California Edison every month. Right? And then the biggest chunk of my money goes to uh, some bank that I've never walked into called Penny Mac that I make a house payment to every month. And man, that is a burden. I mean, I'm happy I got a house, but that's a lot of dough. And then I give a chunk of my money here, and I give a chunk of my... And I'm giving it to all these different people. And if we think that we're giving to the church, we become just one of a bunch of bills. i got to give to the church. i got to give to PG&E. I've got to give to the bank. We're not giving to the church. We're giving to God. We're giving to God. God chooses to use that to fund the work of the church, but we're giving to God. We need to remember that, don't we? Because when we think that, it takes all the joy out of giving. When you look in the Bible, and that kind of leads to the second thing, giving is is to the Lord, not the church. And secondly, giving is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. When you go through the Bible and you find people coming to God, they'll come usually bringing something, a sacrifice, some type of gift that they bring to the Lord. Every time they went to worship, they were giving something to God. And giving was just a part of worship. Just a few short weeks ago, we were in the Christmas season, and I believe one week we mentioned, at least in brief, about the wise men that came and visited Jesus. And what did they do? They brought him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And every time we come, it ought to be our joy to give. How many, remember, how many grew up in Sunday school? You remember going to Sunday school, and man, you, the teacher would have a little checklist, and you'd walk in, you'd say, got my Bible, oh, you get 10 points. I brought a friend, you get 10 points. You're here, you get 10 points. And man, you had to have an offering. And I can remember bugging mom and dad, said, I need an offering, I need an offering. And dad would say, go get a job. No, he didn't say that. He <laughs> said, so let me teach you about tithing. It's a tenth of what you earn, not what I earn. You know, no, he didn't say that. Mom and dad would make sure I had a quarter and I'd put it in a little envelope and I'd take my offering in. And and we learned as kids that, man, that part of what we did when we went was we wanted to take a gift. And giving is a part of worship. It's a part of worship. How many of you ever struggle giving gifts to certain people because they're the type of people that have everything? You know, we've got a few like that on our Christmas list and birthday list. And every year it's like, oh man, what do we get? They have everything. You know, God's the same way. What do you give God? He's got it all. I'm going to give God a tree. Well, he owns the trees. He made the trees. I'm going to give God a cow this year. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need another cow, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What do I give to God? You know, the only thing you and I could really give to God is ourselves. But out of an act of worship, we take a portion of what God has given us and we give it back because we say, God, you're deserving of this. God, it it came from you, and I trust you to take care of me. So giving is an act of worship. 
An old, old, old Methodist minister, Ralph Cushman, who wrote poetry and hymns, said this, the worship that is empty-handed is, according to the scriptures, simply not worship at all. The bringing of an offering to God is pictured in the scripture as a high and inestimable part of worship. That it was part of the worship. And so we come in and whatever it is, we, we want to bring something to God. Something. So giving is to the Lord, not the church. Giving is an act of worship. And finally, giving is a celebration. In fact, the Bible says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. I remember Richard Adams. Some of you remember Tryman Messer. Tryman Messer, by the way, uh, passed away last night, um, our home missions director for many years in Free Will Baptist. But Richard Adams used to travel with him. And Richard Adams said one time when he was preaching this passage, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And he said, he'll take it from any old grouch. But he loves a cheerful giver. But this cheerful giver aspect just lets us know that giving should not be something that is a terrible thing. For It ought to be a celebration. We ought to be happy that we have to give. Up in the Bay Area, as I was up there, and as we started the church, I had to work a little bit to, to pay my own bills in order to get the church going with the big payments and things. And uh, remember, I got a job. I went and got my real estate license and became a realtor. And so I went in, and, and our broker was one of these cantankerous-type guys. I used to just cringe when people in the classes would ask him questions, especially dumb questions, because then he would go off. And I'd like, why are you asking him that, you know? But uh, one day they asked him about taxes, and they were complaining about taxes. He said, I get so tired of hearing realtors complain about taxes. I'm not going to complain. He says, if you're paying a lot of taxes, it's because you're making a lot of money. And that just kind of clicked. I said, well, yeah, I guess so. And you know what? It ought to excite us that we have something to give God. We ought to be thrilled when we get a raise at work because it means, hey, I can give a little more. I can help a missionary. I can send a kid to camp. I can do what I can do something more. I can give. God loves a cheerful giver. And worship ought to be a celebration. We ought to rejoice in that. Let me give you a quote in closing and then a verse. The verse first is John 3 and 16. You know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Giving is us following God's pattern because God was a giver. He gave his only son for us. And I honestly could, I could gather together everything I possess in this life. And I could drag it all down here and lay it at the altar, and it would not even compare to what God has given me. Have you ever thought about that? Just how much God has given me, and then for me to be stingy with anything I have is just ridiculous. It ought to be God. If it's mine, it really is yours. It really is yours. And a quote, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this, In all of my years of service to the Lord, I have discovered a truth that has never failed and has never been compromised. The truth is that it is beyond the realm of possibilities that one has the ability to outgive God. Even if I give the whole of my worth to him, he will find a way to give back to me much more than I gave. 
We can't outgive God. He just gives back more and more and more. And so as we enter a new year, I want to challenge you. Man, find a place to serve because serving enhances our joy in this life. We are following God's pattern by serving because Jesus came to serve. And I also want to challenge you in this area of giving. What are you doing in the area of giving? Are you giving of your time? Or are you trying to claim that I'm too busy thing? Are you giving of your talents and your abilities? Maybe you've got an ability. Maybe you play saxophone better than Raymond plays clarinet. And you've been hiding that thing. You know what? You need to give that to the Lord and say, hey, God's given me this gift, this talent. I'm going to use it for him. Are you giving of your finances to God? Are you giving to people that you run into? Love, compassion. What are you doing in the area of giving? Because Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want all the blessings of God, don't you? And this is one way we can guarantee a great year. Let's stand. Dear God, we thank you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for all that you have done for us. You have truly outgiven us. You gave us your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that perhaps today would be the day that they surrender their life to you. God, that they accept this wonderful gift of salvation. And Lord, I pray today for us as believers gather every week that we would never take for granted the many gifts you've poured into our lives. I pray, God, that we would never become stingy with our lives, with our things, but that we would be givers, that we would be models of you and that we're givers. Lord, touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, with heaven.